So our initial focus as a company is to develop therapies or RNA medicines that are delivered to these high-risk donor livers, ultimately to improve outcomes, ultimately to make them available for more patients, so more patients get the liver they need in a transplant setting. Chronic liver disease is the only top 10 global killer that's currently on the rise. Because of that, we're talking to Oka Bio, an organization using RNA medicines to try and give new hope to people who are suffering from this disease. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly tech podcast with myself, David Savage, on the show that's powered by Harvey Nash Group, where we talk to leaders across the industry and bring you a bit of tech news. Good morning. Welcome to the podcast. It's Halloween weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that thing that they all get really excited about in America. I don't think we really care about quite so much, do we? No, it's really not as big over here, is it? Have you got any, like, Halloween plans? Like, are you... Buy a lot of sweets so that little kids aren't disappointed when they knock on the door. I think I've got to that stage in life where it's like people will knock on the door with their children. And if you don't have anything to give them, you feel like an asshole. Yeah. And you really look like a real misery. Yeah, you look like just a grouchy old man, don't you? Apparently you're supposed to put a pumpkin lantern out to specify that you're like a house that's welcoming of i didn't realize this was, this was a thing like if you put a, a, a pumpkin out it like signifies that you're happy for people to come trick-or-treating i i didn't realize there oh. was any kind of etiquette to it no i didn't know that did you used to go like trick-or-treating when you was a kid like did you oh, do like it once or twice maybe? yeah I, I did it like once or twice i never used to like it i remember once we went with um like a girl who lived down our road and she started kicking people's front doors. And ever since then, I was like, no, me and my mum and my family were like, oh, we're too embarrassed to ever sort of go back and knock on people's doors ever again. It was hilarious. Last year, we, um, we bought loads of sweets because in previous years, it had been like, oh, we'll just get a couple of bags. And then it was like, Christ, I've got to run to the shop and get even more because they're just disappearing. And last year, all the kids were really polite and they were just taking like one or two. <laughs> until this little girl who was dressed as a princess, who must have been like three or four, looked literally angelic, turned up at the door. And after all these kids have been really polite, she just literally dove both hands in and lifted <laughs> out like half the buckets worth the content. And like, wow, that that's okay, fair enough. Eric <laughs> said nothing. Oh well, yeah, she's um she's taken full advantage. She's filled her boots there. Fair play. Yeah. Do you know, right. do you know so what? Angelic. I feel like I can't have the sweets in my house because I'll just eat them. Like, you know, it's like Christmas sweets. If you buy Christmas sweets really early, like I feel like I just eat them in the build-up. So it's... I, it's the thing that you need to go out and get at like Sunday lunchtime. I don't know, will they come trick-or-treating on Saturday? They shouldn't do. Sunday lunchtime, make sure you've got loads in mm. um, and then stay away from them. Yeah, yeah. But they will disappear. Like you won't have any left at the end of the night. I don't think I'll get any trick or Well, I don't know. I'll have to wait and see if I get any trick-or-treaters. Mm. first time in the new in a new place right yeah yeah so um if not I'll, i know that i'll eat the sweets so they'll get eaten either way so it's fine oh, there we go, there <laughs> we go. if you are into halloween well i hope you have a fun time doing whatever you're doing tell us what you're doing if you if you're so that way inclined uh right. <laughs> other things that are happening uh i have sabotaged the podcast because today is the first global psc uh awareness day um which absolutely Amber will be like, what? Uh, <laughs> but it me- meant that uh, we've decided to talk to uh, Oka Bio, who are a tech bioscience organization using uh, data 
to create new RNA treatments for liver disease, chronic liver disease. So that's what today's interview is about. We'll hand over to it and we'll come back with some um, commentary on it afterwards. Today, I'm joined by the co-founders of Okabio. Uh, that's Quinn and Jack. Thanks for taking some time out of your days to have a conversation. How are you both? Oh, doing good. Very happy to chat, man. Jack, I know that you are not the medical side of this med tech. Uh, Quinn, I don't know what your background is. I'll be perfectly transparent to anyone listening. Whilst I've had the chance to chat to Jack previously, I've not had the chance to chat to Quinn. So let's start by doing some introductions quickly and find out what you both do within the business. Yeah, well, one of us would want to have a, a stronger. <laughs> if it's not me, it's definitely Quinn on the liver side. Um, I, I'm uh, well. I'm originally a biomedical engineer by training, but did spend the best part of a decade away from the lab bench and more on the commercial and, and, and go-to-market and operation side of, of healthcare. I worked primarily with early-stage startups in the life sciences and health technology fields, trying to prepare themselves for launch or figure out their products or get products over the, the regulatory approval onto, onto the market. So that's what I spent most of my time doing in the U.S. primarily before moving back uh, across the water. You might have guessed from my accent, I'm not originally from the U.S. Um, and met Quinn in London, heard all about his work in the liver uh, and really very quickly realized there was little else I should be doing or spending my time doing, but uh, helping to build a business around Okabio and this really important problem of liver disease that we hope to make an impact on. And Quinn, then you are you are more of the the science and the doctor angle then. Yeah, I guess I am. I, I when you said you don't know what I do, I kind of thought I, I'm not even sure what I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, beyond beyond starting possibly one of the most exciting ventures in my life with Jack. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a South African medical doctor and geneticist, so that's my weird accent. Um, and this is all pre-millennium. Uh, I've always loved liver. So I was very focused on the genetics of liver disease in those days in South Africa. Um, so that, that's been the thread all the way through, but really focused on technology. Like a lot of geneticists with the Human Genome Project became very excited about big data. So uh, I moved out to the UK and Oxford's been mostly my home for the last two decades in and out and uh, retrained, uh, did mathematics, uh, computing, sort of systems genomics at a PhD level. Uh, and what that really means is the type of genomicist geneticist I am is very different from the genomics genetics we often hear about in the drug discovery space. So my colleagues are very often in that space, the population genetic space, are obsessed with connecting a gene to a disease. And you know it's tough, but it's epidemiology. That's all they do, right? Uh, what we do is the science. So we solve the tough problems of the biology. And that's really important in all chronic degenerative diseases. So whether we're talking neurodegeneration uh, to chronic liver disease, um, because genetics doesn't answer any of the important questions. Like, is it active? Is that gene active in that organ? At what stage? What cell type? And because by the time disease presents, after many, many years of being silent, there are many cells in, in the loop there being angry with each other. So what's going on? And so we use things like machine learning, single cell sequencing uh, to really tease apart that biology. And I, I've been doing that for many, many years from starting my own liver biotechs to being the head of genomics for a big pharma focused on chronic liver disease. Um, and then realizing that, you know, great science is not enough in and of itself. You know, there's there's a big aha for all scientists who think being brilliant is enough. Um, that really the value chain in liver disease is 
horribly broken from not just the discovery, but how we model the disease, you know, just chucking things in cell lines does not give you answers and mouse models don't predict what humans do. Um, but even if you've solved that, what do we do with clinical trials? They're very expensive, very high risk, very long term. And so it is just stifling innovation in this space. And so bringing the science, technology, my background together with Jack, sort of we shaped a vision around this company where we're addressing all these bottlenecks um, all the way through. So you've touched on a lot of very big themes that a lot of listeners might not necessarily be too familiar with. So let's start with with the really basic dumb question, first of all. What's the problem that you're trying to fix? Why are you focused on liver? Well, aside from the fact that it's the only top 10 global killer that's <clears throat> on the rise and there's been a dearth of therapeutics for patients who, who suffer from the indication, it is... A lot of our expertise, we're, we're very focused on developing new innovations for solving this big, messy space, but we're doing it in a way that's, I guess you could consider it kind of step by step, where our first step is focusing on the transplant space. So we're very focused on the initial problem of the fact that many donor livers now that have come into transplant centers increasingly are too diseased or have too much fat on them or are too unhealthy to be used for patients who are waiting on that transplant list. So our initial focus as a company is to develop therapies or RNA medicines that are delivered to these high-risk donor livers, ultimately to improve outcomes, ultimately to make them available for more patients so more patients get the liver they need in a transplant setting. But as a company, as Quinn alluded to, we very much think of ourselves as a, a chronic liver disease company, or we want to be ultimately one day the liver medicines company, where we're thinking about other indications beyond transplant. Like there's a very common condition now known as NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis that essentially is as patients or people in the world is increasingly putting on weight around our hips, that same weight is building up around our liver and increasing, increasingly causing inflammation of the liver, which ultimately leads to scarring and cirrhosis and liver failure. And that's one of the next diseases we're very focused on treating after the transplant space is trying to improve liver metabolism and the resilience to that, that inflammation that livers face when they're under, under pressure, I guess, so to speak, uh, in, in the body and to help develop therapies that could ultimately go with the goal of treating that. And then down longer down the road, as we continue to build a portfolio and develop insights into the biology of the liver, ultimately one day trying to tackle potentially cirrhosis of the liver or later stage liver diseases and wider, mm. wider set of indications. Jack, I think, I think this question probably sticks with you, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, I know that you've just come towards the end of closing a, a funding round. You mentioned there about weight and non-alcohol uh, related disease. And most people probably when they think of liver disease, think of people who've done something to themselves. Either they've, mm. they've drank too much or they've had the wrong diet. Um, does that make it harder to raise money if people think are, are perhaps unsympathetic towards patients in incorrectly or not but i suppose that's the general perception and at a time where there are huge demands for finance in healthcare in other areas as obviously everyone's acutely aware there's obviously um strain on on the fact that a lot of cancer patients aren't getting seen because of covid covid itself how tricky has that been yeah it's a really interesting question i don't think one we've been posed before uh, and I guess there is this kind of public health perspective um, that this kind of it's quite an insidious attitude towards patients who suffer from this disease that it's to your using your words slightly self-inflicted. And 
public health data over the last couple of decades will tell you that telling patients to eat less and move more just doesn't really solve the problem. And we're going to continue to face indications like this that need solutions therapeutically to help improve the lives of those who, who face them. And I guess there, we have had situations with particular pharma companies or investors where there is a skepticism about the disease itself. But I think it is waning that type of attitude and people are generally starting to accept um, more and more that these conditions are, are, are not the, the fault of poor choices are often the fault of a, a wider uh, array of problems that ultimately need so, solutions to help to help public health more, more generally. So that's it hasn't been as much of a bottleneck, I think, as you were maybe alluding, alluding to. But Quinn, I don't know if you want to add a bit more to that from a scientific perspective. Yeah, I, you know, for us, I, I think one of the, the many, as Jack said, with how many debates we have and many debates we continue having with people, but the one that we're speaking about here in particular is uh, getting over the moralistic attitudes to certain human diseases, particularly associated with middle age and getting older. And obesity is a disease. It needs to be treated medically. Just making people, body shaming people, making them feel like they have to go to gym every day for two hours a day, uh, that they have to go on these horrendous caloric restricted diets is not the way forward. And it's that attitude that plays out in a lot of liver disease too. So look, as a doctor, you, you mentioned data. Um, how is it helping you? Because I suppose, like, kind of if I try and give a bit more um, <clears throat> context to that question, because on the surface, it's a bit of a dumb question. But um, <laughs> but a lot of liver patients don't present until they are at quite an advanced stage of disease. So I suppose from your perspective, getting hold of data from patients in the early stages of chronic liver disease could be really quite helpful, but it's quite difficult to do, right? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. It's not a dumb question at all. Uh, and, and I sort of alluded to this right at the beginning when I was talking about chronic degenerative diseases. So again, another big topic for us, <laughs> aside from the moralism of obesity and lifestyle, is um, aging as a stratifier. And chronic degenerative diseases, uh, again, neurodegeneration, cardiovascular disease, chronic liver disease, increasingly now we appreciate, and many more as we get older, we, you know, uh, sarcopenia, uh, you know, things that play out as you get older that sort of mess with your personal resilience to disease um, are silent for most of your trajectory. So chronic liver disease like neurodegeneration, you'll have it for 20 years before you even begin so showing signs. So why are we only studying end-stage disease? <laughs> and, and we do. If you look at a lot of people in the space, they will only biopsy or study tissues or samples from individuals in disease. At that stage, it's a very angry environment. There are a lot of very angry cells talking to each other. It doesn't tell you anymore what triggered that argument um, and how we can perhaps reverse that. And so what we've done is by focusing on the transplant space, make sure that we're generating data across the whole disease spectrum. So to give you an example, the first big discovery project we did uh, was take a thousand human livers, so biopsies of livers in between being harvested and then transplanted into an individual. Uh, and then, you know, we did all, all our usual genomic magic on that. So ML to image the histology, ML to dissect out spatially what the genes are doing, and then ML to map all of that to the clinical phenotypes. But importantly, we took livers all the way from healthy through to fibrosis. So we're recapitulating healthy, fatty, fatty plus inflamed, 
30 plus inflamed plus fibrotic. Um, and so we've been able to really, uh, at, at a spatial resolution, ask those kind of questions. I suppose the other thing that would be really interesting, you, you said that you wanted to be the company, the kind of the company that was known uh, to be able to help in this space, but you're working in a in a very complex environment. I've spoken to a number of health techs on on, on the, the, the podcast over a number of years and trying to work out how they work with various different primary care trusts and hospitals and so on. And it's always been quite an, uh, an academic conversation. I will be perfectly honest. I am someone that has had three, no, sorry, two, but three samples taken, liver biopsies, in the last year, uh, I had them done at uh, a private hospital because luckily I have Booper through work. Um, and my care started with one NHS trust, then was delivered by a, a private company. And then I was moved to another NHS hospital because there was a specialist lab. And it took them just between those three a very long time to move samples around and get various different people to look at the pathology and to get results. And I was, I had the benefit of going through private healthcare mm -hmm. and not everyone has that. From your perspective, when you're trying to get your hands on samples, when you're trying to get to those, to those healthy biopsy, not healthy, but biopsy results that can help you make kind of leaps forward. How do you work through that environment? How have you found kind of being a private company, being a startup, interfacing with the NHS and trying to make sure that you are d delivering and, and growing and, and, and producing results? With a lot of difficulty, I guess I would say. I, 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 let me take that back. No, we, we've been very fortunate as a small company around some of the some of the access to patient tissue we've been able to get a hold of. By being based in the UK, largely, one of the things the UK does particularly well, although the NHS has its faults and is a wonderful organization, but also can be difficult yeah. to to get um to get through to is it does a lot of biobanking. So we've been able to piggyback off of a lot of the the years of biobanking work that some of the academics that we've partnered with have been have been doing. So one of the big biobanks we worked with to get off the ground was a group out of Oxford called the Quad Biobank. And this is the, the UK's transplant biobank where they take biopsies of donor livers before they're transplanted. So we are able to get access to a thousand of these biopsies of livers that are ultimately walking around in patients somewhere, which was these biopsies were harvested at the point of donation before they went into the recipient. And by working directly with these type of organizations, you can kind of get around a lot of the, the organizational challenges of working with big institutions like at the NHS and move quite quickly because you know this better than anyone, but as a small company, really your your currency in a lot of ways is speed, is speed as you're competing against a lot of larger institutions with more financing and more resources, you ought to just be able to move faster than everyone else and think differently and think creatively about the problem, which I think has been a big part of our philosophy at Okabio. And yeah, we've been fortunate in, in knowing the right people. Quinn is a, a well-connected guy in the UK healthcare system. So we've been using a lot of his contacts as well to get, to get in front of the right people and convince them of our... Um, new approach to this problem mm, yeah in many respects you know, Jack, the, the analogy jack and i like to use is is the tesla problem you know tesla is a fantastic company uh, with brought a lot of great technologies both externally and internally together to build beautiful cars but in many respects the genius of tesla was realizing that to make this really successful they had to own lithium they had to make sure that lithium from all over the world was coming in all the time to ensure that they could build these batteries for these cars and that's that's exactly for us that's the, that's the same challenge we face so what's next um you know we're, we're about to hit 2022 as we said funding round getting towards the end or closing you're trying to grow the business 
what what are your what are your ambitions for 2022 we have a very clear fundamental deliverable you want to get to first and this is in the transplant space that i mentioned to you so we're aiming to get to our first ind over the next 24 ish months so it's all go 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 which is i know that sounds like a long time to tech people but in the world of biotech it's an incredibly fast timeline to get to a a clinical trial submission so that's our high level ambition in the meantime we'll be testing out a lot of the the therapeutics the team have been developing and testing as a result of all the data we've we've generated to give us insights into the biology so there's a lot of Testing out, I, I heard an analogy this morning I quite liked around Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison figuring out which filament was the right one for the light bulb and testing a bunch of different different approaches. And that's going to be our goal for the next 18 plus months before we ultimately select what therapeutic we think will be most impactful for the transplant space to move into ultimately trying to improve outcomes for patients who receive these high, high risk livers as a segue or stepping stone into moving beyond the transplant space and into a wider uh, array of, of liver disease indications. You know, and from a scientific point of view, I think one of the things that we're very excited about is, you know, we are digitizing biology at scale. You know, we are, we are over the next year, we are going to be generating a ton, we're already generating a ton, but an enormous amount of data around how human livers behave in space, in time, at the resolution of individual cells. Um, and we are, we are beginning I'm always very careful using this phrase, but it is something we like to talk about in-house. We're approaching a level and should be approaching a level at some stage next year where we have an in silico liver. In other words, we've generated enough data that the in silico model of liver behavior can start making good enough predictions to to really bring down the number of things we need to try out in those light bulbs. Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's a fascinating area. I, I... As people are probably aware, I have a few issues with my liver. I know it's a particularly frustrating and tricky organ that uh, doesn't necessarily behave all the way through, even when you take samples from one side to the other. So I I think it's fantastic that you're working in this space. And I wish you the very best of luck um, moving forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. This is an area that's probably quite alien to you Mm -hmm. and unfortunately really quite familiar to me. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking this like, when I was listening to the interview, I was like, this would be, this is so, yeah, this is so relevant for you, isn't it? So like a lot of what they were yeah. saying was going completely over my head, but I was thinking it from, from your perspective and I was like, oh gosh, this is like, Dave will know everything about this. So full transparency, uh, I have primary, uh, primary sclerosing cholangitis, which basically is a scarring of your bile ducts and your bile ducts are like a tree-like structure that graft onto your liver. And as they break down, they then cause your liver to fail and to go into cirrhosis. And about 50% of people who have it will end up needing a a liver transplant to save their life. So a fairly small group of people account for 15% of all liver transplants worldwide. I was reading Startups Magazine recently, and okra were, um, okra rather, not okra, okra um, were uh, an article in their med tech issue about two months or so ago, talking about the fact that there, there aren't enough viable livers for transplant out there. Because funnily enough, Amber, when you go out and you booze like you did last night, it causes your liver to stiffen and get a little bit, a little bit uh, fatty. And therefore, when it comes to transplant, um, there's a lot of people out there who just don't have viable livers. Which, on the one hand, you'd kind of say, well, it's not really, you know, 
everyone's liver is their own liver. It's 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 not like you should be out there kind of like providing for other people. But there is a shortage, and chronic liver disease is the only top ten global killer that is on, on actually on the rise. Wow! So it's placing a huge strain on health services, um, and there's a lot of people clog, clogging up the transplant list and the UNOS, the UNOS list. It's crazy, isn't it? Because obviously, I know I sort of made light of it at the beginning and said, you know, this has kind of gone completely over my head. But it's something that when you describe it like that and how massive, like huge of an issue it is, and then there's people like me that don't know like anything about it. Like it's in, it's insane. So like, yeah, but why, why would you know about it? Like to be perfectly hmm. frank, until until I until a doctor turned around and said you have an issue, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, I think it's like it's good that this company are doing something, and then. It's sort of, you know, it is starting to spread awareness because, um, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, obviously, like, you know, it's no one's kind of expected to know about it. But, you know, we, we sort of, I don't know, it's weird because I know you're saying, obviously, like today is kind of the, the day where, you, you know, did you, did you say it's like national sort of PS, uh, it's, glo- it's global PSC, so primary, okay. primary sclerosing colangitis awareness day. Okay. Um, so, yeah, sabotaging my own podcast because I have this and because I raise money for PSC Support UK. It's a great opportunity to go. Actually, you know, so so Oka don't spe- don't specifically look at PSC, but when they're talking about chronic liver disease, PSC is one of the very rare and very tricky um, diseases where currently there's no treatment and no cure. So if they can make advances, uh, first of all around transplant support, but then also in kind of the reversal or, or kind of the biology of the liver itself that's a huge step forward for that community of people. Yeah, definitely. And what I was trying to say to that point is obviously that so many people wouldn't have known that that was a thing. Do you know what I mean? And I like, wouldn't have known that we're recognising or it's the awareness day. Like, But then if you compare it to like other diseases or other um, other things, like, you know, if there was an awareness day for say, like, I don't know, breast cancer or, you know, whatever, and that's not saying that one's more important than the other. But lots of people, there's there's more of a conversation around that, isn't there? So I'm glad that obviously you're making awareness of it. These guys are obviously sort of spreading the message, like starting a conversation um, because, yeah, I wouldn't have known anything about it. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm not the only one as well. I think I think one thing that obviously, like you, you point out, there's there are lots of, of awareness days mm. right, for a lot of, illnesses and conditions that people haven't heard of but if you group together chronic pain and chronic disease across the uk as a whole there's actually a an epidemic of of its own going Mm. on there there's a hell of a lot of people living with with chronic illness and and in chronic pain um and it might be any number of different autoimmune diseases it might be might be long covid right Mm. you know there's, there's an increasing kind of awareness because of long covid and the impact that that's having on people um, whilst all these days are different, they all also raise consciousness and awareness around the difficulty that some people are living with that, that, that goes underneath the surface. And we've spoken about mental health on this, on this podcast. A big part of any kind of living with any kind of illness is not necessarily the physical side mm. of it, but the, the mental health aspects of it. Um, because... You know, the, the one thing that I've seen posted online that I, I resonated, and I still this on my Instagram, that kind of went, oh, that, that makes sense to me. Because I'm, I'm asymptomatic at the minute. You know, I, I'm in the very early stages, and most people at this point would not know that they're ill. So I woke up this morning, I ran 10K, I did a weight session, 
I'm, I'm as I'm externally as fit as, as I can humanly be. And most people kind of would class me as someone that's in, in really good health. But when you know that there's something going on inside you, it's like a ticking time bomb. Mm. You, you know that at some point, something's going to go, hang on a minute, that's not quite right. And you live every single day waiting to wake up and go, mm, that's off. Mm. Hang on a minute. Is this the beginning of it progressing? And that's a weird thing to live with. Yeah, I can imagine. And, I can imagine. Like, I think, sorry, go on. I think to do no, no, no. I was just going to say that I think that there's all of those aspects to these kind of illnesses and diseases. And that places a huge amount of strain on families and relationships right up and down the country. And where you get a company like Oka who are, who are looking at uh, chronic liver disease and it's an organ, as we said, top 10 global killer, if they can make progress there, then that's going to take a huge amount of stress and strain off a lot of people. Mm. I think that's a really good point is, as you said, like it's not necessarily the physical condition. It's more, of course, you know, that's that's obviously you know awful as well like you said there's going to be um a lot of people in a lot of pain that really can resonate with this interview and obviously um you know will will completely sort of understand where where you are coming from but i think it is kind of the mental repercussions as well isn't it it's like you know the impact on family like you said it's almost like that that paranoia sort of like waiting for something to almost go wrong which I don't know. I mean, I, I again, I, I don't have any sort of issue, so I sound like a really naive kind of person oh, looking right. from from the outside. But I can imagine that that's just terrifying, like just waiting almost to be in pain, like you know, what like a horrible way to live almost. I, I don't know. I don't know how to sort of to say it without being really negative. No, but, but we all we all unfortunately know people who have had cancer, who have had you know, maybe not chronic but debilitating long-term illnesses who then have pain as a consequence of the treatments and whatever else and you know that that, that comes with mental health issue um repercussions you know i think it's one in one in two of us will get cancer now simply yeah. because we're living longer you know you look at kind of instances of things like alzheimer's and dementia and how common they are you know it, they're unfortunately chronic illnesses right throughout our society so each individual day might feel quite insignificant, but I think taken as a whole, they chip away and they raise awareness and hopefully mm. understanding. And yes, Oka are looking at something quite narrow, but actually in terms of its impact globally, it's it's huge. So what they're doing is is incredible and it's it's great to be able to raise awareness and show how technology and data is, is helping. Mm. And I guess, because um, I think I mentioned to you, maybe just before we started recording, actually, like a lot of what they were saying um, to me, I was like, well, this this all sounds so incredibly technical. But, you know, when I sort of looked into their website and stuff afterwards, I was like, wow, like this is so, I don't know, I've never seen, like this to me is completely niche, revolutionary, like, you know, completely, I've never seen anything like this before. And I can see why it's kind of getting the funder that it is, because um, I, I think they can really change a lot of people's lives and have a huge impact. So, yeah, as you said in the interview, like best of luck to them. And I think they will do just incredibly well. Absolutely. Well, look, um, Jack Quinn, thanks for being our guest. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, during that break, Amber's going to watch a video that I've sent her and then we're going to chat about it afterwards. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. 
As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Is that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. I was supposed to be the robot. <laughs> right, okay, that'll do. That'll do. Okay, that is insane. Right, well, welcome back to the show. So what Amber's just seen is the uh, Facebook announcement yesterday, or so, sorry, we should say Meta, as they have rebranded, because Facebook is now Meta. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Google is Alphabet, apparently. Who calls it Alphabet? No one. Um, but, but apparently they're going to keep their brand. So, you know, it's still Facebook, it's still WhatsApp, it's still Instagram, but they're now called Meta. And that's because they're investing heavily in the Metaverse. Uh, and obviously yesterday's announcement was Mark in, in the Metaverse, showing us how we're going to be socializing with our friends in the future. Um, there's a lot of hate and scorn out there. Oh, I can imagine. Online uh, right now. A lot of people, mainly because Zuckerberg's a twat, let's be honest. Uh <laughs> Um, and Facebook have done some pretty heinous things uh, along the way. However, putting that to one side, my personal view on this is actually those kind of interactions are inevitable. Like they are coming because technology is is getting better and better and, and allowing us to have those kind of experiences. And because people do like immersive experiences. And I watch that and I go... It's cheesy, it's corny, it's really weird that he cycles through a whole load of outfits and then basically picks what he's wearing in real life. <laughs> uh, weird. Um, but if you think about the fact that we're talking about hybrid working and how it's really good for productivity but really bad for collaboration because we can't really collaborate over 2D screens and at distance, actually, those kind of virtual environments would fix that, would allow mm. you to work remotely, but actually collaboratively because it would be fully immersive you would have the same kind of social interactions as you would when you're in a room so look that's my view on it but you've just seen it what do you think do you know what i i would give it a try like i i think you watched my reaction i was like what is going on and i was laughing and i thought it was all a bit bonkers a bit strange but i i would give it a try just more so out of curiosity like to, just to see what it's like just to kind of give it a go and as you said i think for workspaces, I actually think it's a really, really good idea. Like, I think if you was in that environment, because obviously sometimes when it's like a really formal setup on the screen, you don't just speak and say what you want to say. So when you're put into, you know, a virtual environment and it's a bit more casual, it's a bit more relaxed, and it's a bit more playful like that was, like, yeah, I, I think it'll actually do really well. Yeah, and, and it is that thing that... I don't, I don't think that we're all going to suddenly be like, oh, hey, let's go to space and play cards together and you're a robot. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of sci-fi and it's a bit cheesy and it's a bit like, oh, everything's awesome. Like, yeah, cool. All right, whatever. Um, I'd still rather go and actually meet someone and play cards. Yeah. The thing, or just go out for a drink. Um, <laughs> but I can see business getting behind. I really can see a company going, you know what? Let's, let's, especially as the cost comes down. Mm. I think the prohibitive thing so far has always been the cost of these technologies. But if a headset, right, comes down to the cost of a laptop and it allows you the kind of functionality to work, say it was a, 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 an immersive environment where you could just literally pull up a virtual laptop in front of you that you could work on. There's no mm. reason why it has to be a physical 
keyboard in front of us. It could be a soft keyboard in a virtual environment, still accessing the database, cloud, still accessing LinkedIn. Like, we're not physically touching LinkedIn. It's just an application on a screen. What is the difference between it being an application on a screen and an application in a virtual space? Like, if you could go into those environments and literally sit at a virtual desk with... You wouldn't you wouldn't replicate a, a, a laptop. It would be a bit different. But mm. you there's no reason why you can't build a new working environment where people come together. And I and, and, and as the cost becomes less prohibitive, I can certainly see organizations going, this might be an interesting way forward. Yeah, I think if they if they did give it a go, like I think a lot of people would be on board. <laughs> like I said, I think even just out of curiosity, I think people would give it a go. I mean, how how many people would give it like I think a lot of like younger people would be like oh this is amazing I think like the people who sort of prefer working in a more traditional sort of setting and like going into the office don't necessarily like you know the way that we've worked for the last 18 months probably won't be as on board with it but I think people are sort of shifting the way that they work obviously working in a much more agile way they've had to kind of adapt they've had to be a bit more open-minded so um yeah, I think it's interesting. I don't like the outfit thing. I was with you on that. Like, I don't really understand what that was all about, to be honest. I don't really it's just showing. It. I suppose it's just showing what you could dress up like. But I just think it's hilarious that he goes through. He's like, there's a skeleton. There's like an astronaut outfit, and then he goes back round to yeah. what he's wearing. Like, oh, I'll go for oh. this navy jumper and jeans. It's like, oh, what a creative choice. Like, he's like, yeah, I don't know. Perfect or awesome, whatever he's. No, it's perfect. So yeah. are they changing like all their brand and everything, or did you say they're keeping that the same? No. So apparently, apparently, it's still say still Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, but the company is now Meta. It's like it's like Google, like a few years ago, changed to Alphabet. Like, how many times do you ever talk about Alphabet? Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. There you go. Like a lot of people are like, oh god, they're calling themselves like who cares? I don't really care if they call themselves Meta or whatnot. It's not like everyone's going to start. They're still going to say Facebook. Yeah, no one's going to really... It's one of those things that once it's kind of ingrained into your brain, like you're not going to suddenly just start saying, oh, I'll chat to you on Meta or drop me a Meta message. So it just, yeah, it's not going to happen, is it? No. It's like trying to rebrand a football stadium. It's pointless. But um, yeah, so people are getting a bit worked up for that and it's like, yeah, whatever. But the video itself, cheesy and corny as it is and as alien and robotic as Mark Zuckerberg (laughs) is, there's stuff in there where you kind of go, look, Despite despite the angst and the dislike of Zuckerberg and the the darker aspects of Facebook, um, that technology could be really interesting. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. I think um, I again I kind of had a bit of a giggle and I was like, oh, what on yeah, earth, what on earth is this? Like, this looks really weird. But um, but yeah, I think it could be really interesting like you said I think it's things are going that direction and obviously sometimes it's like fear of the unknown like we probably had a bit of a giggle because we were like oh god like this is very strange this is very new but actually and um, because it's so cheesy in America and yeah because of that as well like that was a, a big <laughs> point actually because it was quite cheesy in American but um yeah I'm I'm all for it I'd um I'm actually going to jump off and then watch the rest of the video just to sort of see what else is to come because I've only watched like a minute or so. But um, oh, they, they they go to like a, a virtual like jungle with flying fish. Uh, oh, and just what I thought. Watches. Couldn't get any more cheesy or weird. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then his wife sends him a picture of the dog running around the garden. It's like, 
Why don't you just go have a look at the dog running around the garden? He's in a virtual space telling everyone how awesome it is that his dog's running around the garden. It's like, just go have some nice family time then. Hey? Yeah. Maybe. I could see anyway. some people getting like really obsessed with this though. Like they prefer the virtual world to the normal world. And like that to me is... <laughs> <laughs> ready, ready player one. Yeah, that's like weird territory we're going into I mean, now. Look, one last point. I do think another area where I think this could have real um, application is, is education. Access to education around the world. If you're from a from a place where, or from a community where you have low cultural capital and you don't have the resources to travel, right? Say you're in a part of the developing world. If you can stick on a headset and attend a virtual class where you can really collaborate and interact with people, but you can't afford to go to Oxford, Cambridge, MIT, Yale, Harvard, there is a really interesting positive, perhaps, for social dynamic and change. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And I think for for subjects that are quite um, like creative as well, like you think of, say, for example, like people who have done like, I don't know, like a drama degree or work in the theatre over the last 18 months, they've not really been able to do anything like that. So those people, like their education has been hindered mm-hmm. like so much. So if they had this kind of, um, you know, this sort of virtual world where they could go on and, you know, do whatever they need to do, like I think that, again, is kind of knocking down a barrier. So, yeah, education-wise... Yeah. Could could actually be really like beneficial. Yeah, and there is there is another angle that is raised. There's a philosophical point on this. Or I think that is raised in Ready Player One at one point. Like the film's not very good, right? But the book, um, the main female lead love interest is this uber confident person in the Oasis, which is the metaverse version of what we've just seen, but in the novel, right? And in the novel, she's described as this really kind of cool, really confident really kind of person and and in the book the 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 friends of the male kind of lead all go yeah but she could be like a 42 year old bloke called chuck for all you know like you're falling in love with this girl you don't know she's a girl because you don't know who she is but the 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 point that the book then makes is when you meet her in real life she's shy because she's got a birthmark over half of her face and so she's got hair that covers it. And so in the virtual world, she can be what she wants to be. Mm-hmm. Now, not saying that we should all be running into the virtual world to escape certain aspects of what we don't like. But if you're going into an interview and someone has bias against you because of your background or your race or your sexuality or whatever it might be, and you can go in as a, as a robot and they've got no idea what your background or race is and they're just judging you on the personality. Mm-hmm. That's a, yeah, that's a very good point. I, I don't know, because I think there's got to be like a level of like professionalism still, hasn't there? Do you know what I mean? Is, is it yeah. like if you go in as a robot, like, of course, obviously it knocks down all those those barriers. And, you know, if, if there is um any kind of prejudice there, you know, it, straight away it sort of re- it helps to remove that. But I think, I don't know. I just think if I had an interview and someone turned up as a robot, like I just don't know how I'd, I'd kind of take that. I don't know how I'd... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, and look, look, the, the video is cheesy and it's American, whatever else, and there's a lot of like, oh, God, whatever, this metaverse thing, like we're, we've heard too much of it, get over it, type of thing. but actually when you begin to dig into it and you begin to think about it, you begin to think about work settings or you begin to think about education or you begin to think about bias and how actually it might be a bit of a leveler for people or, or access to, to information, actually there's a whole load of stuff there that is worth some serious consideration. Mm. Yeah, definitely, because you think we've had quite a – varied sort of discussion here is in like we think there's pros equally we think there's cons so yeah i think there's um 
it's a weird one like as you said you, you watch the video and you're like oh god this is really strange but when you start to dig a bit deeper you're like oh there is there is a bit more to it and I think it can help to solve a lot of issues like as you said in in sort of the educational space I think it'd be really really like beneficial and I think um yeah I'm intrigued I I don't know how I feel I'm kind of on the fence a bit but I think there's definitely good and bad to come from this right well look um that's probably enough for today's podcast Amber thanks for joining me uh Oka, thanks for being our guests. And to everyone else, happy Halloween.